Welcome to the Plainfield Christian Church Podcast. We hope that the message today encourages you. For additional resources to inspire you in your journey with Christ, connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. Enjoy today's podcast. Good morning, church. Hey, if we haven't had the chance to meet yet, my name is Luke and I get to serve as one of the ministers here at PCC. And I don't know what your first car was, but my first car was a 1995 baby blue Toyota Corolla. Um, it was, as the kids say, a real chick magnet. It was awesome. And uh, this thing had been passed down like from person to person in my family. And by the time it got to me, like it had been wrecked, the front bumpers hanging on with like homemade pop rivets and my sister like bedazzled a bunch of stuff on the dashboard that I couldn't get off, which is very much not cool for a high school boy driving around. And I thought I was awesome. So I put like a bump and sound system in it that was worth way more than the car itself. And like this thing, this thing was a joke, you know, but you know what, when you're 16, You guys remember what it's like being 16 and you get that driver's license and you get those wheels for the very first time. That car meant one thing. That car meant freedom. Am I right? Yeah. And it was awesome because it got like a million miles to the gallon. It had a weed eater motor under the hood. And so (laughs) great on the wallet, you know, but uh, man, this car, like you'd be driving it around and you know, you're like shaking and the whole nine yards. And, but like every now and then the check engine light would come on and then it'd just go back off and then it would, come on for a little while, and then it would go back. And eventually it just stayed on. And, you know, like, I'm teenage Luke's thinking, I should, like, I should probably pull over and probably go get that checked out by somebody who knows what they're doing. But then my impeccable 16-year-old reasoning, decision-making skills kicked in, and I thought, nah, it's probably fine. I think I'm probably good, right? Now, can I, can I preach that? for just a second, is that okay? Because I think I know a whole lot of people, my guess is you know a whole lot of people who live like that, just kinda running around, doing their thing when there's a check engine light glowing on the dashboard of their souls. We've all been there, and yet instead of pulling over and popping the hood and getting somebody who knows what they're talking about to get to the root of the issue, we just keep on driving, thinking, eh, I'm probably good, sure I'm fine maybe later. Uh, Like Kyle said, we're in this series right now through the life of David, and we've been reading through the life of David together as a church this summer that's been really fun, and we've seen David have some really great moments up to this point. He's had victory after victory. He's he's like kind of swam against the stream. He's being a man after God's own heart. That's awesome, but we are kind of taking a turn in our uh, journey through the life of David, and for the next few weeks, we're going to see David not necessarily have victory after victory, And, and yet God looks at David, and he still says, This is a man after God's own heart. And so we're gonna look at the story of the life of David over the next few weeks to talk about sin and talk about how to repent from sin so that we can still be people after God's own heart. But before we talk about sin today, which I know you're all super pumped to talk about, um, the danger of talking about sin in church is that we can, I can, get tempted to talk about sin as if it's somebody else's problem and talk about sin as if it's something that happens out there and not in here. And even, listen, all of us are walking in here today and we know we're all sinners. None of you would claim to be perfect. And yet there's some of you in here this morning who are like, you're wrestling like with real stuff and real darkness. And the lie that the enemy's gonna whisper to you as we talk about sin is, yeah, sure, everybody's a sinner, but you're the only one who's that bad. And you're the only one who deals with that. 
So before we really start talking about sin and repentance over the next few weeks, um, can we just lay a foundation to remind ourselves that we're a house of grace because we serve a God of grace? Would that be all right, okay? And because we're a house of grace, I'm gonna ask for a little audience participation. Um, Show of hands, if you have ever been tempted and chosen to sin. Anybody? Okay, if your hand is in your lap, that's sin number one, okay? (laughs) Thou shalt not lie, okay? All right, Uh, uh, raise your hand if you've ever known the right thing to do and you've chosen not to do it. Okay, look around real quick. Keep those hands up. You ain't getting out this easy. You ain't wiggling out from under this. Uh, Raise your hand if you have known the wrong thing to do and you have chosen to do it. (laughs) Raise your hand if the Holy Spirit has ever been glowing that check engine light on your dashboard and you've ignored it. Anybody? Okay, all right. We're gonna start right there then because this is a house of grace, Paul says in Romans chapter three, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So you're safe in here today and we're gonna walk to the cross together. And we've been walking through the life of David together this summer, this man that was king of Israel. God said, hey, he's a man after my own heart. We wanna be people after God's own heart. And in our text for today, 2 Samuel chapter 11, we're gonna see the most famous bad incident from the life of David, the story of David and Bathsheba. And, and when we catch up with David in our text, 2 Samuel chapter 11, like things are good. David is the king. He's kind of 50 years old, so he's had some experience, but he's still got his energy. He's at the height of his powers. The economy is booming in Israel. The borders are secure. Like it is good to be the king from an outsider looking in. But remember what God said to David way back in the beginning when he very first chose David to be the next king back in 1 Samuel 16. You remember what God said? He said, the Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And even though by outward appearance, everything was good with David and the kingdom, everything was not good with David and his heart. And we see it right here in the very first verse of 2 Samuel chapter 11. It says, in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. And they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. There's our first clue. David's army is out fighting battles and it was the king's job to lead the army and yet David stayed at home in the palace. What happened to you, David? What happened to that young boy who killed the lion in the pasture when it came after your flock? What happened to that young boy who killed the bear when it came after your sheep? What happened to that young boy who went out to the battlefield and when everybody else was scared of the giant, you said, no, I trust God, I'll fight Goliath. What happened to that boy? That boy who's now grown into a passive man, 50 years old, he's not even leading his army anymore. He's just sitting at home bored. And listen, if I've learned one thing in ministry, it's that bored men do dumb stuff. (laughs) And David would have been a lot safer on the battlefield than he was in his bedroom. Verse two says, one evening David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. So notice he's been napping while his army is fighting. He gets bored. He goes up to the roof of the palace that overlooks the rest of the city. He's just strolling around aimlessly. And you know, idle hands are the devil's playground. And I don't know exactly how it happened, but you can imagine maybe off in the distance, David hears some humming, some splashing. And my guess is that right at that moment, a warning light went off on David's spiritual dashboard. Nah, sure it's fine, maybe later. 
And David walked to the edge of the palace roof where he looked down on the city below. And listen, the Bible doesn't pull any punches. The text says he saw a woman bathing there and she was a stunner. I mean, she's absolutely gorgeous. And my guess is that right as he looked, another warning light went off on David's spiritual dashboard. But he ignored it again. Nah, I'm good. Maybe later. And, and David had plenty of time to take a different route. He had plenty of time to bounce his eyes, plenty of time to walk away, and yet instead, he hesitates. You see, I, I don't think David woke up that morning and decided, you know what, today's the day I'd like to ruin my kingship and tear my family apart for generations to come. That's not how these things go, is it? It's always a process of little tiny steps, most of them under the surface. And in David's case, actually, a warning light had started glowing on the dashboard of his soul a long, long time ago. God had given the law for his people to tell them what to do, what not to do, what it meant to be his followers. And God actually required that each king of Israel handwrite out a copy of the entire law, the first five books of the Old Testament, and read through that, live by that, teach by that, lead by that law. And in that law, he'd given some specific instructions instructions for kings in Deuteronomy 17. David had handwritten this out, that God says the king must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. And yet we've been reading through the life of David together, haven't we? We know that by this point, David already has several wives. So he's already kind of gotten used to ignoring that check engine light on the dashboard of his soul. And sure enough, his heart was indeed led astray just like God had said, he's already been compromised. There's already some chinks in David's spiritual armor. He's so used to ignoring that warning light that when the time comes and he's in a moment of temptation, do you think he's gonna be able to obey the command of scripture like Paul says in Romans chapter 13 to make no provision for the flesh? Do you think he's gonna be able to do what 1 Corinthians chapter six says, flee from sexual immorality? Like, get out of there, dude, run. Is that what David did on the rooftop? No, he, he hesitates. The light comes on and he hesitates. My, now, you, my dad's preached here a couple times. My dad was a preacher, which meant that I got the world's greatest like three-point disciplinary sermons, like walk down the aisle, Luke, the whole nine yards. And my dad, my dad would say this sometimes and when I was you know, getting a sermon. He said, if you hesitate, you will contemplate. If you contemplate, you will negotiate. If you negotiate, you will participate. And if you participate, you will devastate. So don't hesitate. And yet what does David do on the rooftop? He, he hesitates. And then he contemplates. He thinks about what it would be like and his mind runs wild. And so then he negotiates and he asks one of his servants, hey, that, that girl over there, who, who is she? And the servant can size up the situation. He knows about David's harem and he says, oh, that, that girl, that's the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, that's Bathsheba. In other words, hey king, that's somebody's daughter, that's somebody's wife. Wouldn't that stop him? And yet he'd hesitated, contemplated, negotiated for so long that the train had already left the station. And so he participates and he devastates. That check engine light was glaring, but he ignored it. The text says, he just says, bring her to me. And in verse four, it says, she came to him and he slept with her, and then she went back home. Devastating. And I'm sure that probably when the deed is done and the day is over and David goes to bed, he's thinking, you know what? That, that was that, it's in the past, nobody ever has to know about this. And yet, sin always 
comes to the surface one way or another. And before long, the tables are turned. Bathsheba sends word to David, I'm pregnant. And of course, Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, he's out with the army. There's only one option for who the daddy is. And so at this point, as David is confronted, he has two options for what to deal, how to, how to deal with this. At number one, he can confess it. Or number two, he can cover it. And yet he's gotten so good at covering it up to this point, so good at ignoring that check engine light on the dashboard of his mind that he just goes into hyperdrive to cover this thing up. And he he sends a letter to the army and he says, "Uh, bring back uh, Uriah the Hittite. And so Uriah comes to the palace and and David starts talking to Uriah. He says, hey man, how's how's the war going? Good to see you. You know, they put on a steak dinner. And and after, after the meal is over, David says, Uriah, hey man, thanks for the update. Tell you what, before you go back to the battlefield, why don't you swing on home? Spend the night, say hi to your wife. You know what David's doing. He wants Uriah to sleep with Bathsheba so that then she can say that the baby is his and the whole thing can just be over with. And yet Uriah does not go home to see his wife. He sleeps on the steps there of the palace. And the next morning, David says, well, why, why didn't you go home? And Uriah says, well, uh, my friends were out there fighting, sleeping in the open in the army. How could I go home to my wife? And so David says, well, okay, well then uh, just... Stick around for another day, I guess. And, and that evening, he gets Uriah just plastered, totally drunk. But even then, Uriah won't go home and sleep with his wife. The moral of the story is the text is trying to imply that Uriah is a better man drunk than David is sober. And so then David does something crazy, and it, it sounds crazy. He's so blinded by paranoia that... He doesn't even see the warning light at this point. And man, if you've ever been there before, like if you've ever been in such a pickle, like if you have ever been trying to hide something so much or the crap hits the fan to such a crazy degree, you do crazy things, things that you would never do in a sane moment. In a sane moment, you'd say, no, I would never do that. And yet David, in a desperate attempt to cover this up, the man after God's own heart, sends a letter to his general saying, Put Uriah out in the front where the fighting is fiercest and then have everybody else back off so that Uriah will be killed. It's murder. And how does David send that letter back to the army? He gives it to Uriah who hand delivers his own death sentence. And it happens just exactly like David planned. Uriah is killed. When David finds out that Uriah was killed in battle, he marries Bathsheba. They give birth to a son. And I'm sure he thinks that the whole thing is just over. Whew, dodged a bullet on that one. But the very next verse says, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. David thinks that he's good, that nobody saw it all happen, that if he just keeps driving, maybe that check engine light will go away on its own. But God sees. God always sees. And so time goes on. Uriah is dead. David marries Bathsheba. You know, the number of months go by. She gives birth to a baby. And all the while, for the better part of a year, David is living in secrecy. He's pretending as if this whole thing never even happened. And maybe you've been there before. Maybe you're thinking, you know, that if you just keep going, if you just keep going, and and maybe it'll go away on its own if you just keep it hidden. But that kind of living, even though it looks good on the outside It takes a toll on your soul. One of the things we say to our kids is choose to sin, choose to suffer. That yeah, you're gonna be able to get away with some things that 
maybe nobody else will ever even know about, but it always comes with a price. Choosing to sin always means you choose to suffer. It, it begins to rot and deteriorate and tear apart your soul. And we actually know this for a fact in David's situation because later on David would write two psalms describing what was going on in his heart during this whole scenario with Bathsheba. The first one is in Psalm 32. And in Psalm 32, David describes this season of hiding. And he says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. He said, for day and night, God, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. And some of you know that, that like it takes a toll on you to live two lives in hiding. When you have ignored the Holy Spirit's prompting for so long that the longer you ignore that check engine light, the harder your heart gets. It distorts your soul. Some of you, I don't know what you had to read in high school literature class, but maybe some of you had to read the novel A Picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde. And it's a story about this handsome young man named Dorian Gray who sits down to have his portrait painted. And after his portrait is painted, Dorian Gray, he looks at this picture and he wishes out loud. He says, oh, I hope this picture grows old and I am able to stay eternally young. And the premise of the story is that his wish actually comes true. And yet something happens to that portrait. That portrait becomes a picture of Dorian Gray's soul. And so over time, as Dorian Gray lives his life, when he says mean things, the mouth on that picture distorts and twists and snarls. And when Dorian Gray glares at someone with anger or looks at someone in jealousy, the eyes begin to squint and grow dim. And at one point in the story, Dorian Gray murders someone and the hands on the portrait drip with real blood. And Dorian Gray has lost track of the portrait by this point, but toward the end of the book, he rediscovers this picture and he is horrified by what he sees. He's just sickened because it has become this terrible, grotesque image, a reflection of who he really is on the inside, even though his outside is still young, happy, and handsome. And so infuriated, Dorian Gray, he pulls out a knife and he stabs the canvas. And the other people in the house, they come running to the room when they hear the ruckus only to find a withered old man lying dead on the floor with a knife in his chest. While the picture has returned to being a picture of a handsome young man. So if you came today face to face with a picture of your soul, what would that picture look like? I know sometimes for me, and my guess is for some of you, it wouldn't be all that pretty. And that was the case for David. David came face to face with a picture of his soul. And God, the way God did it was he sent a man named Nathan to talk to David. David was king. Nathan was a prophet. And Nathan came to David and he tells David this story. He says, King, there's these two men and, and one of them was poor, but the other man was rich. And the rich man, he had all kinds of livestock, herds and flocks, but the poor man had just one little lamb. But that poor man, he loved that lamb so much. That lamb ate from his table and it sat on his lap. He loved it like it was his daughter. And then one day, some company came to the rich man's house and he wanted to prepare a feast for them. And yet instead of killing an animal from his flock to prepare the meal, he stole the poor man's lamb and he slaughtered it to give food for the party. And 2 Samuel 12, verse 5 says that when he heard this story, David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. 
Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. Can you imagine what's going through David's mind at that moment? Just devastating simplicity. David, you are the man. It's interesting, isn't it, that David could only see his sin when he first saw it reflected in someone else. He saw it in a picture. And this is, this is human, isn't it? It's easier for all of us to see other people's failures than it is for us to see our own. David heard the story of the rich man and the lamb and he knew that's not right. That guy's a sinner. That guy deserves punishment. All the while, he couldn't see those things in himself. And listen, that's easy to do. Because to be quite candid with you this morning, I can see your sin. I know some of you well enough that I know the broken places in your life and I can spend my week praying for you in your sin and counseling you about how to deal with your sin and teaching you about how to beat your sin and preaching you about how to conquer your sin and sometimes it's a whole lot harder for me to see mine. And so I just gotta confess to you that over the last few weeks as I was studying this text and writing this sermon, I got about halfway done writing this sermon when I realized that I was writing this sermon at you. <laughs> I almost stood up here and wagged my finger at you about your sin. And then the Lord always steps on my toes before he steps on yours. <laughs> and he said, hey, Luke, you are the man. You see, the good news of Jesus and the reality of sin is never something that we push on someone else before we chew on it ourselves. The good news for you today is for you and it's for me. So if it's all right, I just wanna to preach to myself today and let y'all come along. First John chapter one, verse eight says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. Now, you raised your hands earlier. None of us are claiming to be without sin, right? We'd all say, yeah, I'm not a perfect person. And yet it runs a level deeper than even just that. Um, let's say, imagine a film crew showed up at your house today and they said, hi, we'd like to make a movie of your life. We just think your story's so incredible the whole world needs to see it on the big screen. Okay, so if, you know, if, I don't know, if it probably wouldn't be a Hallmark movie, but let's say Disney, like, let's say Disney comes over to my house. That seems a little more like in line. And they said, hey, Luke, we wanna make a movie of your life. And we can't quite decide yet what genre it's gonna be. Like looking at you, it's probably not gonna be a sports movie. And we've heard your sermons. It's probably not gonna be a comedy flick. And you're definitely not the rom-com type, not tall, dark, and handsome, you know. Um, we see your three boys, though. It might be a war movie. You have a shot there for that one. Um, one thing we know for sure, though, you're going to be played by Dwayne The Rock Johnson. And uh, <laughs> thank you. Uh, but if they came and they said they're going to make a movie of your life, be honest. There's some scenes that you don't really want to play on that big screen in front of everybody, do you? There's some scenes from your past, maybe there's some realities of your present that you don't really want just displayed for all the world to see. You've probably got some of those scenes playing in your mind right now like I do in mine. So here's my question, what do you do with those scenes? Like those, those hidden places in your life, those regrets, when you know that you've blown it, when you know that you've fallen short, where you're not even the person that you wanna be, much less the person that God wants you to be, when that check engine light is on, my question is, what will you do with your sin? And let's be honest, you have options. You can hide it, 
You can go around putting on a face. You can put on your nice clothes and come to church and say hi to your friends and serve on the greeting team. And you can sit next to people whose lives look perfect and you can pretend like your life is perfect too while the whole time inside you're scared as a long-tailed cat in a room full of rocking chairs. <laughs> Wondering, man, what if, what if somebody actually found out? What would they think of me if they knew how messy my life really is? And so it's just easier to stay in the dark. You can hide it. You can also deny it. That's what David did. You could just kind of pretend that it's not there. And you can get really good at compartmentalizing your life enough to pretend like it's not there. You can delay it. You can look at that check engine light and say, yeah, now, some other time. Today's not a good day. Maybe later. You can justify it. You can say, you know what, I... I can't help how I feel. I'm not hurting anybody. It's just one time. It wasn't a big deal. If my boss didn't treat me so unfairly, if my wife was just a little bit nicer to me, you know, if I'm, I'm not a bad person. You can justify it. You can also attack it. You can admit, yeah, this is, this is bad. I need to get rid of this. And so you, you, just, you just, you should buckle up and you grit your teeth and you muscle out and you can say, I'm never gonna do that again. Or you can escape it. And you can find different ways to escape it. You can fill every moment with noise, looking at your phone every time you have a spare second, doing anything to avoid the awkward silence of being alone with your thoughts, alone with your conscience, heaven forbid, alone with the presence of God. You can escape it in a lot of ways. You can escape it with a little too much to eat and a little too much to drink and a credit card and a shopping spree and popping a few pills and scrolling your phone. Or maybe you can confess it. When you see that warning light, a mechanic would tell you the best thing to do is pull over and call somebody who knows how to deal with it, right? And let somebody pop the hood and get to the root of the issue. And when you do, the good news is 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says that if we confess our sins, he's faithful. We sang it. And he's just, and he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That's good news. That's the good news. That is the gospel. Uh, Tim Keller is one of my favorite preachers. He's, in the recent weeks, he's gone on to be with the Lord, but he said the good news is that you are more sinful than you could possibly imagine. That you are, like, you are broken, you are wretched. Yeah, you admit that you aren't perfect, but you don't know the half of it. Your soul is so warped and so twisted, and you have ignored that check engine light so many times that your depraved little mind can't even begin to comprehend the magnitude to which you have offended an infinitely sovereign and holy God. You're more sinful than you could possibly imagine. But you are more loved than you ever dared to hope. Because God does know all of that. And he didn't choose to stay away and keep his hands clean. He didn't choose to take a step back and let you do your own thing. He chose to step right into the mess and he brought his son Jesus right into it. And now because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus, you can have forgiveness for your sin. You can be purified from your sin. You can be made new. You can have another shot. You can have the Holy Spirit living within you. Romans chapter eight, verse one says, therefore there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's good news. The good news that you are more sinful than you could possibly imagine and yet more loved than you ever dared to hope. And we see this even before Jesus. Back in the story of David, it says that after David confessed his sin, Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. That's good news. David says, I've sinned against the Lord. And he says, the Lord has taken away your sin. And that's the reality for you today. Look at the cross. The Lord has taken away your sin if you're in Christ. That's good news. I read the story this week of a, of a Catholic woman who said that she was having visions of Jesus. Now, candidly, I don't know if this 
story's true or not, but it'll preach, okay? So um, this woman said she's having visions of Jesus and you know, kind of word got around in the congregation and eventually reached its way up to the archbishop and the archbishop decided he needed to come to verify this and come check out the situation on his own. So he came down and the archbishop said, ma'am, is it true that you're having visions of Jesus? And the woman said, yeah. Uh, well, the archbishop said, um, tell you what, the next time you have a vision, I do kind of want to work with you to discern whether these are, are real or not. So I want you to ask Jesus to tell you the sins that I confessed in my last confession. And he figured that was the best way to test whether or not these visions were real because only Jesus would know what he confessed in his last confession. Only he and Jesus were the only two people who'd know the, the depth and the depravity of what was going on in the archbishop's life. And so the woman was stunned when she heard this. She said, did I hear you right, Bishop? You actually want me to ask Jesus to tell me your sin? And the archbishop said, yeah, just call me if anything happens. And so a few days go by and the woman had another vision and she called the archbishop and she told him this. And so the archbishop said, well, did, did you do what I asked? She said, yes. I asked Jesus to tell me the sins that you confessed in your last confession. I'm sure the archbishop's kind of squirming in his seat at this point, you know, and he said, well, what did Jesus say? Bishop, she said, these are his exact words. Jesus said, I don't remember. <laughs> Jeremiah 31, the prophet tells us that God says to you, I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. You've got those scenes playing in your mind. And for some of you, you've kept it hidden for so long. And I can't imagine the toll that that takes on you. But I want you to know that because of the cross of Jesus Christ, God's omniscient. It's not like he actually forgets and actually doesn't know. He does know. He does see. You can't hide from them. But it's that now, through the blood of Jesus, he chooses to hold it against him and not against you. David says it even himself in Psalm 25. He says, God, do not remember the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. According to your love, remember me. For you, Lord, are good. So, so what do we do? Um, the prayer team's gonna be up around the edges of the room toward the end of the service with their green lanyards on like they always are. And listen, if you got some sin you need to confess, like let's do it today. We raised our hands earlier, right? This is a place of grace. Nobody's gonna be shocked that there's a sinner in the room. Man, if you've got somebody in your life who's struggling, we'd love to walk with you and we'd love to pray for them together with you. If, if you have been walking in deep, dark brokenness for a long time and you do not have the confidence of knowing that you are more sinful than you could possibly imagine but more loved than you ever dared to hope and you need to surrender to Jesus for the first time like we saw those three do, let's do that today. Come talk to us or you can always fill out the baptism tab online. And listen, I hope you have some good friends in your life too that you can confess to, that you can have these real nitty-gritty faith conversations with good friends who will lead you to Jesus. In fact, here's, here's what I want us to do. If you would, would you just pull out your phone right now? Can everybody pull out their phone right now? And, and open up a text message. And if you've got one of those good friends, like a good friend you trust, uh, open up a text to them. And we're all pulling out our phones so none of us are like, ooh, somebody's texting a confession, right? Um, everybody's gonna send a text right now. Pull up that phone that person, and if, listen, if you and God are good, if you don't have anything to confess, if you're walking in the light, how about you just send a text to that person that says, hey, thanks for being a good friend. 
But if there is something that you need to work through and you've been putting it off, let's not deny it or delay it any longer. And how about you send a text that says, hey, can we talk? I need some help. And then let's get the ball rolling, okay? I'm gonna give you like five minutes. I'm gonna text my people, you text yours, all right? (laughs) And here's the next thing we're gonna do. I told you that David wrote uh, two Psalms in response to this incident with Bathsheba. The first one we read in Psalm 32. The next one, though, is Psalm 51. And I think this is absolutely amazing that like after all this happens, David's like, hey, you know what I wanna do? I wanna write a worship song that'll play on K-Love about my deepest, darkest secret. Hey, everybody, let's get together. Let's sing about how I murdered a guy, you know? It's amazing, isn't it? And yet that's, that's the freedom that comes from knowing that you've been forgiven by God is that we don't have to hide our dark stuff anymore. We just get to use it to celebrate the glory and the grace of Jesus. And so I have made praying the Psalms the most foundational spiritual discipline in my life. And I know that sounds like weird and you don't even know how to do that. But if it's all right, I'm gonna pray Psalm 51 for us today. These are David's words that he wrote in response to this. And I'm gonna get down on my knees to do it. That might look a little awkward. If you want to, you're welcome to join me. But I'd ask all of you at the very least, would you just put your hands out open on your lap before you? And we're gonna be silent for a few minutes and draw your heart into God's presence And then I'll pray for us, David's words with some of mine sprinkled in along the way. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. God, I'm struck reading down through this psalm that David uses a few different words to describe how bad his sin is, but he uses a ton of words to describe how great your love is. So we thank you that there's more love in you than there is sin in me. And so we ask you today, God, not forgive us because of what nice people we are, not forgive us and we promise to be good from now on but God forgive us according to your unfailing love because of your great compassion because of your mercy you are our only hope for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me against you and you only have I sinned God I'm utterly sinful I am that man and my guess is you've been whispering that to some other people in the room today You know it, I know it too. And God, I know that I've hurt other people, but I also know that my sin was first and foremost disobedience and rebellion against you. So I'm sorry, Lord, because I have done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness, even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. God, as David says, you you would be right to judge me. You would be right to punish me eternally for what I have done. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. God, you are just. I know that I'm that man. And yet I'm also reminded here of when your people were in slavery in Egypt, you had them take the branch of a hyssop plant to paint the blood of a lamb on the doorposts of their homes so that they would be passed over and spared from death. 
I'm reminded later on of how you told the priests to dip a hyssop branch in the water to cleanse a leper who had been healed. So Father, cleanse us with hyssop. You, you have given us the blood of Jesus, our Passover lamb, to spare us from death. You have cleansed us through the waters of baptism to wash us clean. So let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. God, this is what we need. We don't just need good advice. We don't just need another try because we'd mess it up again. But we need you. We need you, the creator God, you who spoke the universe into being, you who entered into the silence and the nothingness and 10,000 galaxies just burst into existence at the sound of your command. We need you, creator God, to create in us new hearts. Give us hearts like yours, pure hearts that love what you love and hate what you hate. Give us the heart of your son and restore to me the joy of your salvation. God, we know there's no greater joy than being fully known, darkness and all, and yet fully loved anyway. So give us all that joy today through Jesus. And as David says, and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You who are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You take no pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. We have nothing to offer you today, Lord. We have nothing to give you that you don't already have except our hearts. So break them, please, where they need broken. And may it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous and burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. God, we know that we have ruined and poisoned our hearts. We have alienated ourselves from people that we love. We have created problems we can't fix. We've broken our relationship with you. So forgive us. Please restore us to the people we were made to be. I know for me how easy it is to look at this story and think, well, I haven't killed anybody. I haven't cheated on my wife. I, I didn't do that. But I know that because of my sin, an innocent man did die. And so, Father, we look at the cross and we ask you to bring healing into this room. I ask you to give my friends courage. And I'm reminded, Lord, of when we flip to the New Testament even, that we see that your son Jesus, you chose to send him as the great, 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 great grandson of David and Bathsheba. Thank you for that. And in the same way that you stepped into that messy family, would you step into ours? We love you. And it's in Jesus' name that all God's people said, amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast today. It's our desire for you to grow in your understanding of Christ's love as you partner with us in our mission to love all people to new life in Christ. If you have any questions about our church or would like to plan a visit with us, go to plainfieldchristian.com. If you would like to receive our podcast every week, we encourage you to subscribe to the Plainfield Christian Church podcast on whatever podcasting platform you prefer. Have a great week.